welcome to Pacific Northwest Coffee and Conversations, a podcast where we speak with leaders in the Pacific Northwest fighting hate and advancing social justice. I'm Kendall Kosai, Director of Policy for ADL's Western Division. In 2019, Oregon passed one of the most comprehensive and forward-thinking hate crime laws in the country, creating a multi-stakeholder-led awareness campaign, bias incident hotline, and sending the strong message that hate is not tolerated in Oregon. In this episode, I have the privilege of speaking with Faye Stetz-Waters, Civil Rights Director for Oregon's Attorney General's Office, where we discuss the new law, the impact, and how it can serve as a model for other states into the future. Let's get started. First of all, Faye, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and really looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better and the, and the journey that you've taken to, to where you are today. So th- thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate being invited. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'd love to start this conversation learning a little bit more about yourself and your own background. You know, you, you certainly have a story career in the legal field, but would love to talk and, and learn more about what you brought you to where you are today. Thank you, Kendall. You know, my background is a little unusual for a civil rights lawyer. I'm a Baltimore native and a twin. My sister is five minutes older than me, but I was the one who was always getting blamed for wrongdoing in the household and always protesting. It wasn't me. So, you know, I think due process was in my DNA long before I came along here. So I grew up in Baltimore, but after high school, you know, I wasn't ready for college. My dad had just died and I didn't know how I'd pay for it. Didn't know anything about it. Um, No one in my family had gone to college. So I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I did so to get some discipline, to belong to something larger than myself and to contribute to the common good. I served for four years and then I went to work as a 911 dispatcher. That was unusual. I felt like I invented multitasking in the 90s doing that work. It was fast paced and exciting. But even police work goes from being exciting to routine because you you learned what to expect. So I decided, you know, this would be a time I would start my formal education. And so I enrolled uh, at community college and then I matriculated to Trinity College, which is about 15 minutes away from my work. I worked on the graveyard shift overnight, and then I went to school in the day, slept in my car before classes. I majored in history and and studied the history of social movements. I was learning about the law indirectly through history, through my education. At the same time, while I was on the job, I was advocating for changes uh, in policy in the department. We had a policy, an unwritten policy that really was, was racial profiling. It had a disparate impact on people of color, even though it wasn't called racial profiling. It was a profiling of cars of a certain age. If a car was over 10 years of age, you used to stop it and make sure everything worked well. That was my chief justification for that policy. And I said, well, you know, it's disproportionately impacting people of color. Poor people have cars that are 10 years or older, maybe you're a car enthusiast or something. You're, you know, ensnaring a lot of extra people to get out. I don't know what is the root of this policy. So... We went back and forth and you know, he finally, he said, you know, what are you studying in school? I said, history. He said, what do you intend to do with a BA in history? Well, he did have a point there. So, he, you know, he asked me if I had ever thought about law school since I'd like to challenge his policy so much. I, I hadn't. I didn't know any lawyers. All I knew about law was well, Perry Mason, law and order, and what I was learning, you know, indirectly through school. 
So that's how I got interested in, a, in a pursuing the, the law school path. I met my sweetie on the East Coast and she was excited to move back home to Oregon. And so I just I started, uh, I looked for Oregon law schools and applied to applied to Oregon law schools. Luckily, I got in. I attended Lewis and Clark Law School at night, worked during the day. I actually uh, clerked for my current employer, the Oregon Department of Justice, which was I had a fabulous uh, experience and wonder, always wanted to get back. Fast forward past law school, I worked as a legal aid attorney right here in my community of Albany, Oregon. Did fabulous work, family law, landlord-tenant law, administrative law, and it got really into this idea of due process. What process is due to the person whose uh, rights are at stake, who's been the subject of an adverse decision by the government? So really, I, d- I dug deep and I represented clients at administrative uh, law hearings. I got really good at it. But unfortunately, the economy took a, a sour turn and I was a new employee and it was let go after a few years because of a downturn in the economy. Fortunately for me, there were some openings as an administrative law judge uh, for the state of Oregon. And because I was you know, just fascinated with due process and this kind of neutral decision making, I stepped into that role. And I did that for a number of years for the employment department, you know, presiding over cases involving uh, people getting fired, people quitting their jobs, a whole bunch of employment issues. So I also wanted to look at due process in a different setting. I then took a job as a hearings officer for the parole board. So I was looking at criminal law and the administrative laws under the probation parole community corrections arena. And so really did that work statewide and other statewide positions. So I really got a, a snapshot of what was going on in the state, you know, within this area. I also wanted to look at due process in higher ed. At the time, you know, Title IX was really being litigated and there were lots of changes around how those laws were being implemented and, and challenged. And so I went to work at Oregon State University as an equity associate where I worked in the Office of Equal Opportunity and Access and helped the administration work through those problems, both um, staff, students and, and faculty. You know, and then at, while I was there, our governor, Governor Kate Brown, there was an opening on the bench in the community where I lived in Lynn County. And I put my name in because I told my friends I would. After 10 years of practicing law, I would put my name in. And so I did. And I was fortunate enough to be selected. And I was appointed to the bench uh, in my own community. It was a wonderful experience. I got to see my community a whole different way. I did draw a challenger and the voters decided who they wanted to be their judge and they didn't decide for me. But it was great because it was an interesting race. I, I attracted a lot of attention. People were rooting for me. And I uh, I think I, I carried on that, that race with a, a lot of class <laughs> and I got a lot of people's attention. And so I had um, some, some nice job offers after I had to step down. The Attorney General of Oregon was looking for someone to fill a vacancy in her civil rights unit as the director. And um, it was like a wish come true. I, 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 I couldn't have asked for a better better position. And I, I'm excited about my work and I look forward to, to coming to work every day. So, I mean, that's how I got here. I mean, it's a long, long route, but really it's not what I set out to begin with. Again, the words civil rights never came out of my mouth. Due process, fairness, equality, all of those things uh, really stood in its place, but that's what it meant. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and it seems like public service has been kind of something that's really intertwined with all the the kind of the different roles and the different occupations, the different ways that you've engaged in the community. So can you talk a little bit about why public service in particular is so important to you? 
You know, it's about the common good. What services do you have? What skills do you have that you can lend to the common good? My dad was a, a public service employee. He was a, a groundskeeper at a school, you know, and he, and he taught me the value of hard work. And, and, and if we all work together, we all benefit. And so sharing the, the skills and services that I have and the knowledge that I have to advance the, the common good has always been just part of my moral code, my ethics, and my, and my, my work mode. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not made out for corporate America, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it seems, again, like in everything that you've done, it's been in service to others. So public service oftentimes gets a, a bad rap sometimes. And, uh, and it's really difficult, right? Because I think it's sometimes it's thankless and people don't recognize the challenges that there certainly inherently are with Within, within public service itself. And so, you know, I, I certainly commend you. And, and, you know, your position that you're currently in, it's it's really influential and it's an important role in the, the AG's office. So can you talk a little bit about what your role is as civil rights director for the Oregon DOJ and what it's been like kind of stepping into that role? You know, like I said, it's exciting. It's a, it's a dynamic role. Uh, when I first stepped into the role in 2019, which seems like a lifetime ago, it was field work. It was outreach on the ground, meeting people in their space where they are. I felt like an ambassador for DOJ. I was out there listening, trying to learn and, and figure out what's going on in communities impacted by inequity. I was looking for impact cases to bring back to the agency. And so, you know, in the course of that work, I you know, was building relationships, meeting with people, uh, finding out who, what are the barriers to accessing government services? What are, do people know who to contact when they have a problem? And so in my office, as you know, my, my position is housed uh, in the office of the attorney general. So I have the attorney general's gear on really important issues. And so things like language access, community safety, public safety reform and equity issues. We talk about these every day. And so I bring what people share with me to uh, people who have influence and power to be able to kind of change change the direction and, and to, to, to move, advance the equity agendas forward. And so We've been able to bring some just unique programming to the agency as a whole to bring attention and awareness to the barriers faced by folks impacted by inequity. And it kind of makes some more of our processes more transparent so that they are more accessible to folks. So I'm really proud of that. So that's one piece of the work. I sit on a number of, of work groups that look at these same issues. So I have peers in other states. And so we, we collaborate, we come together uh, on litigation, we come together on brainstorming ideas and solutions. And so really do have so many community partners, not just in the state, but across the nation. And, and that is really exciting. I recently returned from the uh, National Attorneys General uh, Conference and learned so much about what's happening at national level uh, every year. The National Association of Attorneys General meet and, and, and set a topic that they're going to focus on. And so last year, it was focused on hate. Attorney General Carl Racine from the Washington, D.C., that was his, that was the thing that he was concerned about. So all last year, yeah, I was, I was uh, helpful and, and was able to present information from our bias hotline about how we got it up and running, uh, what what challenges we are incurring. So those those types of things. So it really is, it's just really interesting. I get to be at the table on so many issues because of where I sit and the role that I have. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great segue because I, I think that brings us to kind of our, the 2019 
hate crimes law that, that passed in Oregon, which was also known as SB 577, which kind of updated the bias crimes law, right? And so can you talk a little bit about the significance of that legislation? And I know that ADL played a role working to get that also passed, but can you talk a little bit about the significance of it and what came out of it and produced what kind of product today? Yeah, thank you, Kendall, for that question. This is Senate Bill 577 really changed the landscape with regard to how Oregon responds to bias and hate in the community. The new law changes changes the statutory language from intimidation to bias to better reflect the behavior that was occurring around the state. The crime classifications remain the same, but the felony and misdemeanor offenses that track the former intimidation statute. In this instance, we've also clarified that gender identity is a protected status under the law. That was a question, and and now it's been clarified by by Senate Bill 577. It created the new legal term, the bias incident. So many times, the AG, when she went on listening to her, she heard and learned that bias incidents, these awful things that are happening that fall short of a crime, the harassment, the language that's used, intimidation that's happening. These things were not really being addressed or being inadequately addressed by law enforcement. As you know, so many times the criminal justice system focuses on the perpetrator of the harm. And for bias crimes and incidents, we were losing sight of the victims, the people, the families, the neighborhoods, the communities harmed by hate and bias. So this law focuses on that harm and seeks to support the victims because we know that it takes a lot to come forward to report these things and losing sight of the experience of the victims. Safety, the support that they need in the aftermath of this was something uh, that I'm very proud that that we recognized and, and fixed. So another feature is the hotline, which is a big one. We created an actual telephone hotline for witnesses and victims to report what they what they have experienced or witnessed. And it's answered by an actual person, a bias response coordinator who's been doing a fantastic job. That hotline went live in 2020, January 2020, when it first went live. I was answering the phone. I had to draw on my 911 background, and I was not as good at it as, as our bias response coordinator. But the hotline is a place where folks can call and receive support. They hear validation that their experience was indeed targeting or biased. They can learn about options for community support and talk about options for next steps. And that includes if they want to report the if it's a crime to law enforcement, if it's a safe option for them or other resources to get help within the state. So that's another piece. And, and then finally, like the big piece is to collect data. Oregon was unaware of, had not collected data about the incidences of a bias that were occurring in the state. We had no idea how many people were charged or convicted or entered a plea of guilty or no contest to a bias crime, what the trial outcomes were for, for, for bias. And so their data collection requirements require Oregon Department of Justice to transmit our bias data to our Criminal Justice Commission partners, where they analyze it, track it, and issue a report with recommendations each year. The district attorneys in our states are now required to track the cases that are issued, that are uh, referred to them from law enforcement. They have to track which cases were presented to them for prosecution of the cases that were issued by the DA, the charges that were indicted, all sentencing enhancements that were requested, uh, sentences that were imposed, including the conditions of supervision, all charges to which the defendant entered a plea of guilty or no contest, and the trial outcomes. So, 
we now have a year's worth of, of data collected, well, going on two years now, where we have reports that are issued every July with the recommendations from the Criminal Justice Division about how we, what tweaks we can make to, to change or enhance our reporting and our law. So one of the recommendations that came out of the last report that the Criminal Justice Commission made was that to increase our staffing. We just had one person answering the hotline for the whole state. We had 44% of our calls going to voicemail, and they recommended that we uh, receive additional support so that we uh, could capture these reports uh, faster in a more timely manner to support folks. You know, and we share all of this information with the public, with the governor's office, and with the legislature to help improve our laws and to improve our response to bias and hate statewide. You know, and what's come out of it? is we get to do great work supporting people in the aftermath of hate and bias. We get to connect people and support them in the aftermath and, and help bring resolution to this awful thing that may have happened to them. And so we're really proud of that work. In fact, our legislature, you know, granted us additional funding to staff our hotline with uh, hotline advocates regionally. So we will be able to bring on five to six additional folks to be able to do this work. We've done it so well that the legislature has uh, tasked us with raising up another hotline. That's the Sanctuary Promise Hotline to help field and respond to potential violations of our sanctuary laws by law enforcement and public bodies. So we're in the, in the midst of, of, of trying to launch, uh, getting that one up to get it launched as well. So we feel really fortunate to be doing this work. It's timely and that we now be able to really uh, dig in because we'll have the, the support that we needed. Yeah, I, I mean, the law itself is one thing, right, to pass and, and, to, and the concepts that are within the law that was passed within SB 577 is one thing. But to be actually implemented in the way that the state has done, you know, I have uh, nothing but, you know, kudos and affirmations for the way that it has been rolled out because, and I'm sure it's, it hasn't been easy, you know, by, by anything, but I think, mm. you know, when you, when you launched, there was a viral campaign, there was a swanky new website, there was, you know, you, you have, like you mentioned before, an excellent hotline intake staff who's a social worker who works with the community. The Oregon DOJ has engaged in a series of conversations with different communities about, you know, the state of hate and kind of the things that they've seen. And, um, you know, I think you've done done things in the right way. And I think a lot of states can take that model of what's happened in Oregon and really apply it to other places. Because I think the way that you have engaged and really rolled this out is really a model that, that should be emulated across all regions. And so, again, I'm so pleased of, you know, from the inception of the, the law itself, right, to passage to implementation, again, at least from externally, has seemed pretty, pretty flawless. So, you know, I, I'd love to talk a little bit about the hotline itself, right? It, it was launched in early 2020. And, you know, people have been calling in with not only, you know, bias uh, or, you know, hate crimes or bias crimes, but also bias incidents. And you, you kind of differentiated both earlier. And, you know, according to the hate crime data from that year, but according to the FBI, the number of hate crimes reported by Oregon rose by almost 60%, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's at least attributed partially to the new hotline in terms of being able to capture some of those different events that, that you weren't capturing before? Absolutely. Thank you for the, the flattery. I would love to say it was just me all alone doing all this great work, but it was really a combination 
of having great candidates and having selected well and being in the right place in the right time and having an awesome, awesome uh, support from in the office of the attorney general, as well as uh, had access to a lot of resources. So I have just a, a dynamic and amazing steering committee which really helped outline the basic path and the function of the hotline. So when our coordinator came on board, she was really thoughtful about the call sequencing, the workflow, and that website. And we had these cool digital assets, the public service announcement, and all of those things. So we got an awareness campaign going. But then, you know, 2020 hit, and we had all of the COVID, the measures that that kept us shuttered, and we have to move online. So we couldn't get out and get people's attention about the changes in the law as quickly as we would like. As you know, bias and hate are underreported. And at some level, this is a trust issue. Many times people who have tried to report an incident only be told there's nothing they could do. Uh, Please say there's nothing that they could do. Uh, That's as unsatisfactory for folks who've experienced hate and bias. But police can do more than that. They can condemn the act. They can express empathy. And now in Oregon, you can make a referral to our hotline or to a qualified local victim service. Certainly, uh, you know, increased reporting on the hotline reflects an increase in bias crimes and non-criminal bias incidents. 2020 was an ugly time. 2021 was ugly still. The attacks on our AAPI community, we have had a large incidence of anti-Black bias, hate bias occurring. Uh, We expect these numbers to increase this year because it's an election year. We've had a steady increase in the number of bias crimes and incidents since 2016. Also with the proliferation of extremist groups sowing seeds of hate while openly antagonizing, harassing people, we expect more reports. So this increase in reporting reflects an awareness of the hotline. I think it also reflects a confidence in the hotline. If people are confident that they're going to reach a person who uh, is trauma-informed, who is culturally responsive, and who supports them in getting help in the aftermath, then they'll have had a somewhat positive experience out of something that came from negative. So that I think that, 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 that we're getting an, an increase in reporting because there's confidence in reporting. People know about the hotline and then people have had benefit from the hotline. So Absolutely, absolutely. And the hotline has really taken off, right, with hundreds of inquiries every month. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about what the impact has been on affected communities, right? Because this is really meant to, to provide a opportunity for affected communities to report and to have someone listen and to either be referred to appropriate services or to make sure that law enforcement follow up properly or, or whatever it is, right? And I think, do you have any personal anecdotes on what its impact really has been on you know the Oregon community? It's amazing. Since the launch of the hotline, along uh, we've had uh, so many conversations. We participated in, in multiple, over 40 culturally specific groups we had conversations with uh, since the hotline launched. We've shared our data in a visualized way, uh, issu- issuing these county snapshots of a bias occurring within a county to kind of jumpstart community-based conversations uh, to address these problems. So, you know, we have folks who are, you know, who've been fueled and, and energized by, you know, the work that we're doing and they want they want to help. I think this issue, this this moment of racial reckoning, uh, people really questioning what are they doing and they realize that they can do more. Uh, so people are starting to, to get involved. Uh, uh, I just spoke with someone who, who, who wanted to find out more about law school. They said they wanted to be a, you know, a biased crime lawyer, you know, so, so people are really energized. Youth are energized. 
you know, with all of this business going on with the school districts, we've had a surge in reports of bias perpetuated in the school setting, university setting, K through 12 setting. 11% of our reports on the hotline uh, were from uh, around schools and universities, 11%. And, it, you know, it's, we didn't anticipate that, um, you know, so I am meeting regularly with the Department of Education, strategizing uh, around community safety, school safety for administrators, for teachers, for staff, for students, for school boards. No one anticipated that that these folks would be targeted, and especially our, our school board members of color would be targeted for hate. Our female and women superintendents have been targeted for hate, and our educators, everyone who supports an inclusive learning environment have been targeted. And so the safety planning is important, and we're developing tools and resources to help those folks uh, to ad- address online safety and physical safety. You know, we've had stories of people so concerned and fearing for their safety that they left Oregon, moved away. We've had others, uh, we have had other stories about, uh, you know, just people standing up for other people, recognizing, you know, their humanity, stepping in and being good bystanders when these type of things happen. And so I think the more we talk about it, the more we train people, get people educated uh, and on board, the more people will find out this is everyone's work. Absolutely. You know, at, at ADL, we often say that sunlight is best disinfected for hate, right? And be able to shed that light and to be able to provide those resources and and really talk about, you know, some of these very uh, difficult topics, I think is is something that, uh, again, is, is so important as a government service, right? And so you, you alluded earlier to how you've had such a tremendous response to this hotline and and the data that you're collecting and the different cases that you're you're working on. And so you've recently expanded with several new positions, staff positions, right, for for intakers. So what kind of impact is that going to have on the hotline? It's going to be tremendous. We went from one bias response coordinator uh, answering the hotline, answering inquiries via our online portal and uh, following up uh, in the aftermath. But, but she can't do it all. I, like I said, 44% of her phone uh, calls went to voicemail. And so now we, we won't have that problem. We'll have enough staffing so that no calls have to go to voicemail. Additionally, uh, we have culturally specific and linguistically diverse uh, folks who will be answering the hotline. We'll have a number of languages represented here. We'll have Arabic, Farsi, Spanish, French, uh, linguistic diversity right there available to connect with people at the outset. So that's really huge. We'll have a regional presence. Our Oregon's a large state. We'll have a regional presence throughout the state. So these folks will be in the various communities around the state working in that community. Uh, A large portion of their job is community outreach. So they'll be on the ground uh, uh, in people's spaces, learning firsthand about what people are experiencing. They'll be able to bring all of that information back to us and we can strategize on what we can do to mitigate some of the harm that's being caused, educate folks about the service and encourage people to report. So I think that we'll be able to certainly close that, that communication gap. Those calls won't go to voicemail. We'll be able to have a true statewide presence and we, and people won't be burned out because we'll have enough personnel and we'll be able to establish all of the things we need to establish to be able to deliver the services throughout the state. So it's going to have a huge impact and we're really, really excited about that. 
That's amazing. And again, congratulations on the, the amazing work that, again, from the passage of the law to the implementation, it's been, it's been exciting to see the different things that have, that have really come out of it. And so, you know, as we kind of look toward the future, now that this hotline is, is, is rolling, it's rolled out and there's different things happening. And so what does the future hold for uh, the Director of Civil Rights for the Oregon DOJ? What, what's going on that we're looking forward to in terms of trying to address what kind of issues are kind of popping up and what can we look forward to, to engaging in? It's a unique position because so many times, you know, government works, it's mysterious how government works. It's bureaucratic, it's layered. There's a time, a place, a language that, that renders government inaccessible and impenetrable to the average um, Oregonian or whomever. And so the work that I do is about building relationships. It's about opening things up, demystifying processes, putting a face to a name, providing language access. And it it comes at a great time of racial reckoning where people are demanding more. And it's a time for government to be more transparent, more open and more accessible. So I'm really excited about that. You know, and it requires us to be, you know, a, a lot more thoughtful about who is not at the table. You know, we use the term of people impacted by inequity. Uh, and this was a term that was brought to us as a result of a community conversations that we had uh, over the summer. And, and I think it more accurately describes, you know, the relationship of where people end up more so than marginalized folks. You know, uh, so, so I think that, that there's, a, there's a lot more opportunity when the government starts to work in partnership with community-based organizations and opens its doors to the people. So I'm really excited about that kind of growth because I know having waded through many administrative law books and statutes, that is not easy for someone to find a simple answer to a question that they have. And, and our job is to help folks and, and, and I'm proud to be able to be a part of a system that's trying to do that. Not perfect, but we're trying to get there. Well, on this podcast, we try to kind of end on a, a light note because oftentimes the topics that we have are, are pretty heavy. And I'm sure that your work is, you know, on the day to day is not always the, the lightest of subjects. But, you know, we, we try to end on a light note because we want to we don't want to know what gives people hope. And so for you, what, what gives you hope for the future, especially during these really challenging times for a number of different reasons? What does hope look like for you? Thank you for that. I, I appreciate you wanting to end on a high note. And I, I, it is giving me really training living in this world. I, I see some the dark sides of, of very, very disturbing things. And so, you know, uh, we're living in this moment now where we're struggling with our school districts, where students, um, we have a school district where students were involved in an online slave auction attempting to sell their Black classmates. An employee showed up in blackface at work to protest COVID safety measures in the school boards who voted to silence teachers and eliminate this kind of welcoming signage. That's affirming that we all belong. You know, those are just disturbing, divisive, heavy, and wrong. Just wrong. But and you know what? I know I, I have come to learn from my from my history, studying my history of social movements, and, and just seeing our youth today. The youth know that this is wrong, and they won't be cowed by these actions. Youth have been brave and courageous, and they give me hope despite adults' failures. This was evident in September past when Southridge High School girls soccer team, they had a match with Newburgh High School where lots of racism had occurred. This is where the place where these auctions had occurred, et cetera. During the playing of the national anthem, the Southridge Skyhawk players took a knee in solidarity with the players of color on the Newburgh team. 
The Skyhawks' actions show so much bravery and kindness. Their gestures spoke volumes and acknowledged these, these players of color and these, these students impacted by inequity. It acknowledged their existence and, and it was a recognition of them and a support of them. And that is what makes me hopeful, is our youth. Well, on that amazing note, and that I, I am again so grateful and honored to be able to to speak with you today. The work that you do is so important to all communities. Again, congratulations on such a successful rollout of the bias response hotline in Oregon. And you know, if you if you want to check it out online, uh, the website is standagainsthate.oregon.gov. You can also see Faye in the in the swanky PSA that they put out there. And again grateful for the partnership to, to be able to work together, uh, not only in, in the work that you do, but also in the work in the community. And so thank you for your time, your uh, public service, and your, your ability to, to bridge community and government together. Thank you, Kendall. Thank you, ADL. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the collaboration. Thank you for the support. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Look forward to working together for more. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.